Welcome back to the Hacking the Gap show. This is Greg Voison, the host of Hacking the Gap. And I have a returning guest coming on today, and it's Heather McGowan. And Heather is the author of a book called Disrupt Together, which we have done a podcast interview for and is up at Inside Personal Growth and will also be at the Hacking the Gap uh, website as well. Heather, good day to you. How are you doing? Great. Thanks for having me back. I look forward to having another uh, great conversation with you. I appreciate you taking the time to do it. I'm going to let my listeners know a little bit about you, Heather, and then we'll go into our series of questions. Heather works at the intersection of the future of work and the future of learning, an emerging field that integrates design strategy, management, consulting, and education. Um, Heather uh, uses single-frame visuals to help people quickly understand shifting mental maps and contextual references. She assists executives in rethinking their business models, teams, and organizational structures. In higher education, she advises presidents to develop learning agility to prepare graduates for jobs that do not yet exist. Um, Heather was the architect of the Kunbar College of Design, Engineering, and Commerce at Philadelphia University, the first undergraduate college explicitly focused on innovation. She is the co-author and co-editor of, I said, of the book called Disrupt Together, How Teams Consistently Innovate. And her corporate clients range from small startups to publicly traded Fortune 500 companies, from Autodesk to BD Mechanical. Um, she speaks internationally on the future of work and the future of learning, and we will be putting links to the blog. She's got a couple of great, uh, actually, YouTube videos as well that we'll put a link on there for. Well, Heather, as you know, this Hacking the Gap, I believe that most corporations today and people inside businesses are obviously focused very heavily on innovation. They're focused heavily on um, also how people get into this modality and get into the flow and the mindset that's required to create more innovative thinking. And so this, these series of questions that we'll be asking you are really around how you believe uh, the steps in the Hacking the Gap process might work. And the first one is, is what role does intuition play in helping you connect the dots um, while innovating? Or if you've observed others during the innovation process, you could apply that as well. Or designing something new. And I think intuition is a huge piece of it. It's, uh, it's a matter of taking in a lot of uh, data and information from disparate sources, different domains, different industries, and having that moment where it becomes so clear that you support something from that works in one domain, connect it with, a, with something from another domain, create something entirely new. But in order to do that, you need to have a lot, you need to have a broad set of inputs if you just focus on the domain you're in, you sort of keep coming up with iterations on the existing solution. So if, mm -hmm. you, if, you, if you study much more broadly, like for example, the, the founder of Priceline famously said that he, he was inspired to create Priceline based upon the decline of produce. He, read a, he reads uh, a, an hour every day on something that he has no idea what it may mean to his business or his potential business. And he just reads very broadly from produce to social structures in emerging company, countries to um, jazz to improv to, you know, all across the board. And he read this article on how produce 
it dies every day. You know, if you don't sell it, it has no value anymore. You started thinking about how airline mm-hmm. pizza the same way, and that became the inspiration for the startup Priceline. So um, I would say intuition is a huge piece of it, but intuition can't happen in a vacuum. It has to happen with a huge broad set of, of inputs. And if you look at the, the Renaissance, um, that emerged because people were domain spanning. The Gutenberg Press came from a silversmith who grew up in the wine region who looked at block printing from China. Um, that's how we have to come together with innovations, but the intuitions can't exist without these broad and non-obvious inputs. So one of the things you're saying, and I heard this from Stephen Kotler as well, the gentleman who's got the Hacking the Gap genome. It's called the Genome Project. It's written all kinds of books, Bold Abundance, Rise of Superman. Um, he basically said the same thing, that really finding material that wasn't uh, in your particular area of focus and reading it every day really sparked these synapses in the brain. Do you have a theory about what happens when you're actually reading and engaging in content or learning content that is not in uh, your area yeah, I was of focus? Article, yeah, I was reading an article today about how we read in, information, and, I, and some of it was related to how we form these sort of rigid and opposite opinions around our electorate, since that's sort of top of mind right now. We tend to prime our our attention towards what our belief structures already are, and then we frame the information around those belief structures, and then we use our unconscious biases to filter through all the information in front of us just to hang on to those things that support the beliefs we've already made in the, in, in the predetermined um, opinions we already have. When you read broadly without expectation to what it applies to your industry, you have the opportunity to sort of break that process apart. Because you're saying, I'm just curious about this. I'm just wondering, you know, you're not reading it with a filter of how do I apply this to my industry. If you do that, you're probably going to fail. What you need to do is Mm -hmm. just say, I want to learn something new. I don't know why. And I'm going to be okay with not knowing why. And searching for information that will sort of rattle around in your brain. And at some point may have value. It may never have value. But you can't begin with the frame of, oh, I need to find something that I can port to my industry. Because then you're already starting to filter out things that may not be obvious. I, I would agree. And I, I think that, that this is a really important point that we're talking about because I don't think it's done enough. I think that people get so busy in their own area or their own field um, and they get so immersed in it, so deep in it, that they don't take this time. So this is one of the things that breaks that cycle. And I think that it also changes the synapses in the brain as to how they fire. Um, how do you believe you gain insights into finding solutions? And where do you believe that these insights emanate from? Um, you've obviously been an educator, you've worked in businesses, you've spoken around the world, um, and you've worked with lots of groups of people. And this doesn't just apply to you, it maybe applies to the people that you've worked with and observed. I think that the, the key to it, at least for me, is to say I'm not an expert in anything. Because once you're an expert in something, then you know that. And there's a, there's, a, there's a trap in being certain. And there's a certain trap in knowing. Because when you're knowing, you're not asking. So I sort of begin everything by saying, you know, people hire me as, you know, quote, unquote, expert in certain areas. But I'm really clear. I'm not an expert. I'm just a curious individual who's going to continue asking why until we get to the information that we are looking for that in some cases we don't know we're looking for. So to me, that sort of beginner's mind to say, I don't know. 
and it's okay not to know, and I might not be right. And uh, I think that's a, a really important place to begin with any sort of innovation or change management, paradigm shifting work that you're trying to do. As soon as you pigeon yourself mm -hmm. an expert on anything, or even the word futurist, I think, suggests you know what the future is going to be, um, I think you're better off just saying, I have a beginner's mind and I'm trying to turn curiosity into a career. I'd agree. I think that you take the right position because I'm the same way. You know, I, I think that you're you're co-collaborating to find solutions with teams. You're co-collaborating with um, uh, CEOs of companies and the people inside of companies to actually develop something. And that, this brings us actually to the next question, which is good. Um, do you have a belief that developing something new or creating a new product or an idea or a solution to something has any connection to your theological or spiritual practices? And do you believe that there is some power greater outside this human force that's at work? Um, yes, I think in, in, in a way, like one, one of my roles right now is I, I'm doing work for a company called Hyperloop Transportation Technologies, and they're trying to create, to realize Elon Musk's uh, vision of having people travel between cities in low-pressure tubes going 750 miles an hour. But this organization said, we, wanna, we want to intentionally build our culture. And in order to do that, we think we need to create a role that is um, part of, you know, connected to the C-suite in, in, in the top of the company. But really, we, we want to call it the minister of culture, because we want it to be a role that really listens to and orchestrates the thoughts, feelings, beliefs, and visions of the community that's creating this, because it can't just be a top-down thing. You, you do have tenants you want leadership to illustrate, embody, and, and, and uh, live every day, but you also need to listen to the, the community and orchestrate them. And, and I think that that kind of, that to me, that vision of being the bottom of the pyramid, not the top of the pyramid, and leading from behind and listening, it, it very much is, you know, it's a minister's role. It's an in-service to the community. It's an in-service to the company. I think more of that sort of approach in all of our organizations uh, might serve us all better because you put the good of all above the good of one. Yeah, and that's a really big vision that Elon has, and obviously um, that organization has their work cut out for them to, to do that. So they've got to have some very not only forward-thinking people but some real creative folks with inside that culture. And I think to to develop that culture, you're right. You need a minister of that culture. Now, I gave you a chart prior to this, and most of my listeners will have this as well. But if you were to create a chart like the Hacking the Gap chart, that you see this sequence of events that occurs in developing a new product or service, um, do you, after looking at that chart, do you believe that the, some of those points on the clock are correct. Uh, is there a sequence to you, or do you believe that people just start almost anywhere in that in that cycle? Um, I think it depends on which uh, type of innovation you're doing. If you're doing incremental innovation where you're improving on an existing paradigm, you may start halfway around the clock and only go between you know four or five numbers in some sort of sequence because you're 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 following a path of improvement, improving on what's known. So the other uh, segments of the clock may not be as relevant because you've already defined the paradigm upon which you're going to improve. 
if you're going to create an entirely new paradigm, um, this to me, this this uh, graphic to me looks like a, a version of like a design process, or an innovation process. In in that case, I think that you could, in some cases, start anywhere on the clock, and in many cases, you'll be going across the circle. So you're not necessarily going in order. Um, it's an iterative process, so you'll go backwards and forwards when you get between one step and the next and realize that your assumption of the prior step was perhaps wrong. Then you go you go back maybe two steps or three steps. And so if I were to take a marker, draw over this and different things I've worked on, it would look like a hairy, you know, a big hairball because <laughs> you will go uh -huh, across exactly. between steps and circle back. Um, the other thing I would say is some people may look at this and say, okay, the time in each step is equivalent. And I would say that uh, if you're doing kind of paradigm shifting innovation, a lot of times the, the time in some of those early problem framing and problem finding steps is 75% of your time. It's really mm -hmm. understanding, questioning the question, understanding, the, finding the right problem to solve, defining the success criteria. When you really do paradigm shifting innovation right, question isn't even obvious. The question and the solution get defined together. Well, that's that's a good observation because I've had that said as well, and I believe that we're actually going to be modifying the actual diagram a bit to reflect that, at least bi-directional with the arrows and maybe cross-directional as well, because I agree with you that it does not happen in this sequential process. That's more of a, of a flow chart to show people what some of those steps are actually. So I would agree with you on that. And the articulation have, of it as a circle allows you to go across as opposed to if you had done it as a linear process, then it would assume right. start and end place and it wouldn't be obvious that you circle back two steps. Right, and there is a lot of going back and forth. I, I totally agree with you on that because it just, and the amount of time you spend on each step is not equal. Um, you know, as you said, you're going to spend more time up front than you will on the rear end. Although the implementation stage does have a lot of uh, <laughs> a lot of time spent in it, usually. Um, do you have any special techniques that you employ, or have you watched others employ, to help them have breakthroughs? Uh, daily meditations, contemplation, uh, communing with nature, and if so, how important are these practices to keeping your head clear? and your consciousness open for breakthroughs, insights, and ideas. Yeah, I think, you know, you put all those inputs into your head from, you know, reading broadly, thinking broadly, speaking to non-obvious stakeholders or constituents that give you, you know, all the things that give you those inputs. And then you have to take periods of time where you get completely away from it and do something else entirely, whether, you know, go for a walk or go for a swim or something that just completely cuts you off from additional inputs and it allows your mind to rest so that, non-obvious connections start to be to be made sort of in the background, and then you suddenly have this aha moment. And the aha moment didn't come out of nothing. It came out of all of those things, and the, the ability for your mind to rest and some of these sort of collisions to take place in your brain. So for, the, for that kind of initial inspiration, I think it's important to get all those inputs and then give yourself time away from it and not to push it. Um, it it'll come to you when it comes to you. Um, and then in later stages of the process, when what you're trying to do becomes real enough to you that you could articulate it to somebody else, then making it as concrete and tangible as possible so you get feedback, whether it's a, a prototype or a drawing 
or a nar you know a story or an analogy or any way that you communicate get input from other people upon you know the kind of breakthrough you've had. Mhm. Mm and again, it it does require time away. It it requires this time in contemplation, meditation, nature, whatever it is that you do because I think that gives you time also to make these connections in the brain. You you oftentimes have this firing going on through those synapses. Um, when you talk about the aha moment, that is one of those moments. And, and that brings me to my next question. When you're in the flow, um, I've actually been following this flow genome project from Stephen Kotler for some time. And, you know, he, he talks a lot about flow and that corporations are trying to hack flow. Um, do, you, do you believe you did anything to help you to attain that state of being? Or do you believe that it just happened as a sequence of events that were set up to happen? Because right now, a lot of businesses are just trying to hack flow. Yeah, I think getting out of the office is key. I think, um, you know, trying to, I try to, in terms of my schedule anyway, try to book all my meetings over a couple of days of the week and then have, you know, a couple of half days here where I have a lot of unstructured time so I can do reading and thinking. If you're just sort of going through this execution mode in an organization, in the office, every day, in the same environment, it's hard to get into the flow. Um, so you need to break up the environment you're in. You've got to break up the time and how you spend it. Um, you've got to be willing to, it may hit you on a Sunday afternoon or a Saturday morning. Um, so you've got to be willing to sort of shift. Um, and I think this next generation is doing a, a great job in terms of merging work and life, so you may take a Monday afternoon off and work on a Sunday morning, just depending on where you are in your flow. So I think that's important to just be in tune with um, when, you're, when your brain and your body's ready for it and take advantage of it. You mean that ultimately the flexible schedules? I know the guy that owns uh, Patagonia, he obviously tells all his people to, you want to go surfing? Go surf when you want. You want to go uh, skiing, you want to go do whatever you want, it's very, very flex schedule at Patagonia and a lot of companies, but I use that one as an example because, you know, that's what he's doing. But I think uh, even Adobe, uh, my son is a chief design engineer there, uh, very many of these practices have now been integrated inside these companies, um, flex schedules, uh, time off, a lot of time off. Uh, time off with pay, I might add. Um, it's pretty interesting when you get design engineers having that kind of time off to be creative. So you're talking about that that kind of schedule kind of helps to develop uh, this innovative thinking, right? Yeah, and, and, and the time off is really important. I mean, they, a lot of companies have, you know, uh, institutionalized, you know, there's no vacation schedule, take all the time you want off. Um, that, I, I've heard, it tends to be, then there's bravado about not taking time off sort of like the old bravado about going on no sleep, and we've learned that that really is a detriment. Sleep is a competitive advantage because it gives your brain the ability to flush out those sort of partial ideas and toxins that prevent these uh, connections from being made. But some companies are requiring time off, and time off is sort of like turning off your computer, letting it rest, letting it reset. Um, and we need to do that, and I, I think we need to stop uh, having this sort of bravado that we don't need sleep or we don't need time off because we end up making really poor decisions. Lots of mistakes as well. Um, you know, 
a lot of these people that I've interviewed, thought leaders, they use tools and aids to help them innovate. When I say help innovate, it's, it depends on how you want to look at that. But there's all kinds of mind mapping software. People listen to music and, and, and they meditate. Um, what kind of aids, if any, do you help to stimulate uh, your innovative process or what you've seen others do? Um, I like to uh, listen to books, go for walks. It gives me an opportunity to, when you get your mind and your body moving together, that tends to help. Um, I, use a, I do a lot of um, drawing of concepts and I use computer programs to do it, but I also use just a plain old mechanical pencil and a sheet of paper. And uh, that's most helpful to me. I have not found any particular tool that gives me any more insight than giving myself the time and space to do it. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. And I find that some people have different techniques that help them. Now, you obviously are one of the de facto people around teams working together and, and uh, disrupt together is your book. And innovation is, is oftentimes enhanced by working with groups of people. The collective conscious can create a solution where the sum is greater than that of the parts of the whole. How do you recommend thriving in uh, this kind of group think environment when people are innovating? I think it's really important to understand what your strengths are, your cognitive preferences, whether it's, a, you know, so it's a, sort of a collective bucket I would call self-awareness. So whether it's your your strengths finder from Gallup or your Myers-Briggs or what kind of innovator are you, all of those things kind of point you to different sort of quadrants of where you prefer to work. You know, some people are divergent thinkers, some people are convergent thinkers, some people are accommodating, assimilating, some people are balanced. And so understanding where your both your strengths are, but your, your also comfort level in terms of where you like to play in a process is really helpful at the individual level and it's also helpful at the team level because you know how to tap different people. And that brings up the kind of concept of role fluidity. You know, we, we, we've educated people to this idea that, you know, the manager, the leader is at the top of the company company or the organization, and these other people are subordinate to them. But that process really cuts off so much talent, and we need to think more about people more in sort of a rugby scrum, and where people should mm -hmm. be in that, in that circle, and when they should play in different parts of the process. So in terms of collaborative work, under self-awareness at the individual level and at the organizational level, so you know what your collective capabilities are, and when people should be stepping up in, in this kind of role fluidity in different um, functional areas, depending on where you are in the process, is central. Mm -hmm. And have you ever seen where these groups of people that are either doing software innovation or designing a new product or a solution, um, where the, the, the makeup of the team is just not working? And if it's not, what have you basically tried to do to help them rectify that? Um, sometimes it can be an individual that shouldn't be in the team because the individual is, you know, could be a bully, could be a, you know, objectionist, could be trying to grab the ball all the time, not comfortable with role fluidity. So it's it's not just the, the makeup of the team in terms of their capabilities, but it's also the dynamics of the personalities. Sometimes you can address mm -hmm. that and, and help that individual uh, be more uh, of a contributor and less of a, an objector. Um, sometimes you just need to break up the team and need to put, put new people I on. See. It. So it depends on the circumstances. Great. Now, 
I've talked to a lot of people now doing interviews about this book. And do you ever find that the work of innovating or designing or solving these problems has some draining element to it? And if so, what do you believe distracts, drains, and leaves you or what you've seen as you've observed some of your clients empty? You know, we've we've kind of created this culture of everybody getting a, a, a medal or a trophy, you know, participation awards and all that. And so, uh, a friend of mine asked me for the work that I do in higher ed, which which can be difficult. I said, well, how do you do it? And I said, well, I get my love at home. So I think in organizations trying to do innovation, you're often going to be wrong. You're often going to you know fail as part of the learning process, and the uh, success uh, is always going to be shared. So if you're an individual who likes to be right, likes to win, and likes to get the credit, and we've we've modeled that in, in our education systems as, as the definition of winning, we've sort of shot mm -hmm. ourselves in the foot. So you got to mm -hmm. go to work uh, at these problems every day and say, I probably, I don't know, I'm not the expert, I could be wrong, I'm likely going to fail, and this isn't what uh, my my contributions today are not going to be what defines my self worth. I've got to define my self worth in a in a broader sense around an inquiry kind of purpose. And I think that reframing would do us all some good. So you're saying, in, from your estimation as an educator, you think the educational institutions have kind of actually set that model up to win, and that that particular mindset is really really a challenge once you get back out into the uh, work-a-day world. Would you say that? or? Yeah, I mean, if, you, if the education system is, is all geared towards measuring when you got the right answer, and you go into a world of work mm -hmm. where the greatest value might be the right question, that's a mm -hmm. paradigm shift. Yeah, and, you it, know, it, you, it is. When you stack the class up in terms of who got the most right answers, and then you go out into the workforce and you say, hey, we're going to value the people who find the most interesting questions, and we're going to value the team that collectively puts together the best answer to those most interesting questions. That's a paradigm shift. Yeah, yeah. Because you know, I was watching your video um, yesterday, actually, the the one that kind of comes with your email, and I was really fascinated by this. And obviously, part of your work is the future of work and the future of learning. Let me ask this as kind of our par parting question. You obviously said to me earlier that, you know, look, you're not going to put yourself as an expert in that field, but if you were going to give me some key indicators or things that you see that are happening and observing um, that in your estimation could be changed or altered to uh, improve um, the experience that people have um, in the, what this future of work will look like in the future of learning, what would that be? Because it is an emerging kind of situation at this point for everybody. I think we've got to just focus a whole lot more on discovery and expedition leading and going out and trying new things, making lots of small bets, being comfortable with failure, learning from failure. Being failure is part of the process. I saw uh, an interview the other day that the founder of Alibaba, the, the huge, the largest, I think, IPO it was, he failed at mm -hmm. everything prior to that. And every single thing he failed at, he learned from. Steve Jobs dropped out of college, failed at a number of things. The founder of um, Uber um, dropped out of college, failed and bankrupt his prior startup. There's something to that that we're missing. Uh, we're only expecting it in our entrepreneurs. We're not expecting it in our everyday 
workers and, and entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial individuals. And I think we need to have that sort of failure is part of the process and, and not knowing the answer uh, but looking for the next question really should be our imperative. Yeah, and I think when you look at entrepreneurs like that and people who have failed over and over and over again, and I know from personal experience because I've had many startup companies of mine that have failed and nothing has really been, been a huge success, but I think it's the inquisitiveness, the nature of the inquisitiveness of the people that actually have those failures to finally find a way or to keep going, persistence is in their blood, um, to find new ways of doing things. And they're always reading, they're always inquisitive, they're always trying to find new ways. Would you believe you finding those traits to be true of those type of personalities? Yeah, and it's not just the entrepreneurs. If you look at um, Diane Naya, the woman who went from Cuba to, uh, to Florida, she, she said that she wasn't mentally ready to do it until she was in her 60s. She failed in her 20s when she was more physically ready, which seems counterintuitive for such a physical feat. But there's something right. to that. You know, there's something to the grit that comes with time that we need to figure out how to instill that in individuals earlier, or encourage that or reinforce that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember somebody telling us telling a story about the woman who who actually swam from um, Catalina Island to the Pacific Coast. Right, it's about a twelve mile swim, but the reality is, you know, shark infested, and the coast was foggy. She couldn't see it the first time, and she virtually gave up. And she asked him to pull him from the water. And then the second time she swam it, it was foggy again. But she knew this time because the goal was really right there. She was only a half a mile from shore the first time. Um, so it's really an interesting story and kind of the mindset that's required when you can't see something, sometimes you give up. And I think they say sometimes people are within, uh, you know, two feet of succeeding and that's when they give up, you know? Yeah. Great stories though. Yeah. In, in our education systems, we've been focused on sort of these next bodies of knowledge, whether it's STEM or data or, you know, whatever it may be. And it, we would much better be served to, to be, develop agile mindsets uh, of inquiry, where we just continue to pursue new questions, uh, answers as, you know, placeholders until we get the next best question, so that we, mm -hmm. we never miss those last two feet you're talking about. It, totally. Agile mindset is so, so important. And I think what you see happening is uh, when these companies are run and you get into these big companies and even some of the smaller ones, you know, they're looking at the quarterly goals and they're not being attained. And so it's, a, it becomes a financial thing. So they've got to dislodge themselves from that. But um, that is, that is kind of the mindset that gets in the way. Well, Heather, it's been a pleasure having you on the hacking the gap show. We appreciate you spending your time and giving us some of your wisdom and knowledge about how you believe people innovate and create in this world. Um, it's truly been informative. I appreciate you taking the time. Appreciate you being on the show. For all of my listeners, um, you can find out more about Heather at www.heathermcgowan, and that's M-C-G-O-W-A-N.net. That's heathermcgowan.net. We will put a link in this blog entry as well to uh, Heather's website. And Heather, thanks so much for uh, being on the show. Thank you. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Have a great time.